episode 113, Not Patient Engagement. Today, I speak with Jan Oldenburg about person-centered healthcare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Jan Oldenburg has written a couple of books on the theme of how to encourage people to engage with their providers. We talk about this today and also why she has ditched the term patient engagement. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Jan. Thank you, Stacey. I'm so pleased to be here. You have written two books, and the first one is entitled Engage, Transforming Healthcare Through Digital Patient Engagement. The words that I am focused on right now are the last two, which is patient engagement, because recently you have, I'm going to say, started not being particularly fond of the term. That's right, Stacy. I contributed to growing up and uh, really talking to a lot of patients and consumers, actually. One of the things that they've made it clear is, A, their patients only in a small portion of their lives. In the rest of their lives, they're individuals, they're humans, they're people, and they still care about their health, even in those contexts. The other thing I think I've grown to realize is that the term patient engagement carries at least a flavor of condescension. It implies that it's something that we in the healthcare system can do to people rather than something that they participate in, that they choose, that they're individual agents who get to make those choices. And we can do it with them, but we can't do it to them. What's the case for taking this up right now? I think a lot of the attention right now comes as a result of the move toward value-based care. And one of the things about value-based care is it's really clear if that you are going to take care of the health of individuals in a population, you can't do that just by engaging with them when they get sick. You have to think about what do they care about the rest of the time? What are the things that they need to do to be and stay healthy, to manage chronic conditions, to prevent illnesses from getting worse? That means taking into account the things that they do outside the context of the healthcare system. It means thinking about how to help them with their choices about exercise, about diet, about habits. And that's a very different mindset and perspective. It's one that perhaps the HMOs have had for a long time or the integrated delivery systems. But for the rest of us, it's a change in the way we think about healthcare and the business of healthcare. It does put a spotlight on what individuals do in that 80% of the time or more that they're not under the roof of or in contact directly with the healthcare system. This would seem like a very different skill set, but also is almost a different mindset. It's a shift. How do you see the best way or what have you seen work relative to 
handling both of those two very big factors. Number one, the whole mindset and culture of an organization. And then secondly, providing people with the tools and education that they might need in order to pull this off. Yeah, it's going to take some time for us to shift the mindset of the whole healthcare system, although I think there are very promising indications. Some of those indications are there's uh, medical schools are taking this into account. They're building in courses in listening. They are more apt to teach empathy and empathetic communications. They're shifting slowly but shifting toward uh, looking at the patient indeed as a partner. And some of what it takes will be relaxing of and a mindset shift away from some of the hierarchies in medicine. And the idea that the doctor is always the one who knows best and a good patient really just follows orders. Those things are starting to happen. We're starting to see some of those shifts as well from doctors experiencing patients who come in with more active questions, more concerns, with wanting to understand, for example, what the side effects of a particular medication would be and whether they have alternate treatment paths or who bring in a really validated research. And those things, too, are changing the mindset of physicians. But it's also part of leadership within a health system. So physician leaders who are saying, no, we're going to practice medicine differently in the 21st century, who show it in the way that they allocate their time, who demonstrate it in how they reward and reimburse um, not only physicians, but I think it's a staff change as well. So it needs to be across the board of a look at not just the attitudes, but the values that the organization holds. And I think it's a way of helping everybody come back to the reason that many people went into healthcare in the first place, which is an orientation around helping and supporting people. And part of that means using electronic tools, both to provide convenience for the doctors, but also convenience for the patients. So if we end up with a set of tools that work great for patients, but don't work great internally, that add steps or add hassle, they're not going to be used. The tools that really are going to speed this revolution need to add workflow ease within the physician office or hospital, and they need to add convenience for patients. So there needs to be that mix, and the designers need to take both into account. All right, Jan. So I've made a short list here. The list of mm -hmm. things that need to happen to bring about participatory medicine. Based on what you just said, number one, education active patients, number two, so market forces are, are kind of pushing leadership. Four is rewards and values. So what are the rewards and values inherent in an organization? And then five, digital tools, which could help physicians manage time and extend care in a consistent and efficient way. Did I get the list right? You did a beautiful job with it, and thank you for organizing my thoughts in that way. Um, the only thing I think I would add is to number five, it's not just about tools that organize things for physicians. It needs to be tools that also actually add value for patients. And I think 
uh, value for patients in terms of the digital tools comes down to three core things. One of them is connection, that they're tools that actually make it easier to connect to their physicians and health system. Two is convenience, that they actually make the tasks of daily living simpler. If you think about the rest of your lives and the things you use digital tools for, many of them are about convenience and we're a bit behind in implementing those kinds of things in healthcare. And then the third is it has to add life value. It has to be something that makes a difference to how you live your life and actually that you see as a consumer and individual a real value in using those tools. And if you get those three things on the consumer side, you're actually going to result in engagement and that's going to make things easier on the health system side as well. I have about eight questions, and I'm going to try to keep them orderly. Now, this was two years ago, but let me know whether the situation has improved or remained static. I was in a physician office, and there was an article on the wall that this physician had written. Basically, she was admonishing her patients for going on the internet and trying to diagnose themselves. Her rationale was, why do you want to do that, patient? You don't have a medical degree. You don't know what you're doing. Generally speaking, you don't know what's peer-reviewed or not peer-reviewed. So you're going to find some saying that the rash you have is a precursor to some horrible fatal illness. And you're going to be out coffin shopping and come in here in hysterics, demanding tests. And then I'm going to need to talk you off the ledge. And I don't have time for that. What's your advice? So, so first question, Stacey, is did you leave? <laughs> because quite honestly, that's one of the things that is, I think, important to changing those mindsets is when their patients say, you know, if you've got that kind of an attitude, you're probably not a doctor I want to see. There was just in the last two months, the New York Times ran an article on whether or not the internet is bad for patients. They had four different perspectives offered. I don't think any of them actually was from a patient. If there were any from a patient, it was one. Um, and I was so dismayed that we were still having that dialogue in 2016 because absolutely there's garbage information everywhere available. But let's be clear, we trust individuals to make huge decisions all the time about their lives. Think about the decision to purchase a house. Is anybody saying don't go on the internet and look at articles about either how to get good rates or what home inspections are or how to think about the price you should be paying? No, because we trust people to be able to filter through the noise. And honestly, part of the role, I think, of a doctor is coach. To help people understand the difference between validated information and not. And it's one of the things that health systems can do is by providing sources of valid information. And if you think of what Mayo has done with that or what Kaiser Permanente has done with that, part of it is a physician can help point their uh, patients to sources of information that are validated. But let's not slam people for trying to find information about their health. They are the people who have the biggest stake 
in what happens, how it happens, and what the outcomes are likely to be. And we're just starting to see articles emerge about patients who actually uh, know more than their doctors, are able to understand what's going on and point their doctors in the direction of something they may not have considered. Our second book, Participatory Healthcare, has 27 patient stories in the back, and each of them uh, highlights some aspect or another of the care the individual received that uh, wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been activated around their care. And in addition, it highlights some stories of patients like Hugo Campos, who has been fighting with Medtronic for information from his implanted defibrillator so he can do a better job of caring for himself. Or uh, Dana Lewis, who um, has actually worked with her glucose pump, her continuous blood glucose pump, to get the data and actually build herself an artificial pancreas so that she's got a continuous loop system going. Those are innovations that are coming from the patient side, not from the medical system. If we ignore them, if we don't respond to them, if we condescend people, we just invite them to walk with their feet to somebody who is more open and willing to acknowledge the role they can play. The reason why Homo sapiens as a species have survived and thrived in a place where weaker and, and hairless is because of our great ability to innovate. And generally speaking, the, the people that are the most innovative are the ones with the greatest need or the ones where the need is the most apparent, which would be the patient. Exactly. I'm working down your list here. And um, another aspect you had mentioned is digital tools and how to use digital tools to assist physicians who are being pummeled. Let's just be completely transparent here because we all know it. You know, physicians are being pummeled from all different directions. So if we're asking them not only to type stuff in the EHR and do all the documentation as well as do the diagnosis, as well as be able to engage at a higher level. I mean, that that's a whole discipline unto itself. Yeah, I, I think this is a topic that there's no quick fix for it, but absolutely it has to do with how we design tools. So if we're designing a tool for patients, bring the patients in. If you're designing a tool for physicians, bring the physicians in. If you're designing a workflow tool, make sure you incorporate staff. But if I look at electronic health records specifically and look at how we did the design of those, I think one of the things we were so focused at that point on designing tools to capture the clinical data and to make the data accessible electronically, that that became the mission as opposed to how can we build a tool that really helps a physician or a PA or a nurse do their daily tasks in a more efficient way. Now, if you were really focused on that, yeah, absolutely. You'd have to figure out a way to capture all that data that comes in, the data from the conversation with the patient, the history data, the data from tests and, and examinations. But you'd probably have a different mindset about uh, how you created the data entry screens, who was doing it, what sort of tools you created. And if even more so, if your focus was, how could we use digital tools to increase the amount of time 
physicians and patients can spend together in conversation and dialogue, wow, then I think you'd be designing a whole new set of tools. And those attitude shifts we can now start to do now that we've got some of the basics in place. And I foresee we're either going to see uh, enhanced tools sitting on top of the core EHR systems that help us accomplish those or a whole new generation of EHRs that now that we know what we know, that shift, that focus. I think the same thing can be said for the administrative burden that uh, physicians and nurses now have in terms of paperwork and validations and procedures. Have we really looked as carefully as we need to at how we could use digital tools to simplify that process, to amplify it and and reduce the amount of time it takes to engage in what's not the core practice of medicine? How would you recommend that this transpire? Is there some sort of methodology by which a health system or a provider can arrive at an answer, a digital answer to their needs? And I say this because I was talking to a health administrator who we were talking about digital tools and and the purchase of or the creation of. And he said, I have all these startups that are calling me. You know, I I come back to my office and I have a full voicemail of all these tech companies who are offering their product for free, like they're doing me a favor. But basically, they're asking me for free consulting. (laughs) So if you are a hospital administrator now or nothing for nothing, you are a provider of, of digital technology. How do you recommend that everybody commingles experience and collaborates? The principles of user-centered design, I think, are still some of the core approaches. And there's some amazing work going on in the design field about uh, there are folks who are working on design for empathy and thinking about what that actually means in terms of how you do systems design in a way that conveys empathy and compassion. Ann Weiler of Well Pepper is one of the people I think of in that context, but there are many people really engaged in the business of thinking about how to design better health tools, how to use graphics and illustrations, how to make data relevant and pertinent. But the core homework is You have to have the people who are going to be using the tools, participating in the design and in the evaluation of those tools. And as a system, when you're purchasing them, you've got to be crystal clear about what your goals are and make sure that as you're doing your selection process that you're selecting for those goals. Do you feel like this is an underpinning of the trend that I've been seeing more and more lately where providers are installing their own innovation labs or their own venture funds, really. Absolutely. And I think it's out of frustration in part because they're not getting as much of what they need from the more classic vendors in the space. But, you know, let's be honest. I think the other thing that's going on is that there's huge promise in the capabilities of technology and we're not using them to their full extent in the healthcare system. So if you think about personalized healthcare, what that means, first of all, from the whole genomics side of things and the potential that you could end up with a treatment program, drugs, and an approach that really is tailored to your biology 
let's also think about what that might look like in terms of engagement programs that are tailored to your personality. So the marketing community has done an extraordinarily good job of figuring out how to understand who I am and what are the things that are likely to move me to make purchases, right? Let's take some of the lessons that they've learned and apply them inside the healthcare space. So we're not treating every diabetic in the same way. So we're not reaching out to every person with heart disease as if they've all got exactly the same motivations and goals. Let's figure out how to take some of the, both the flood of data that we've got and use it to understand how to reach out to individuals and treat individuals as individuals, not as a population. Even in population health, everybody wants to be treated like an individual. Dave Chase was on the podcast several weeks ago. And one of the things that he was talking about is moving from health 2.0 to health 3.0. That that health yes. 2.0 is kind of this overcorrection where we went from complete laissez-faire to way too far in the other direction, too many metrics, too many demands on physicians with digital technology that really is not physician-centered or provider-centered in, in any way whatsoever. And that has actually diminished not only the patient experience, but the engagement that you're talking about. Do you feel like, though, the fact that we went through this overcorrection, this health 2.0 phase, that if you say, let's layer on some more digital, that your average provider, it's going to be like commence eyeball rolling sequence now? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it, but it's got to be it's got to be digital that actually helps and supports. And so if you think of it, you know, I know everyone uses this analogy, but let's think about Apple. And they designed capabilities that people wouldn't have articulated were what they wanted, but turned out to work in an intuitive way that so matched the way that people lived their lives that adoption came in a flood. And I think there's that art to the design process. Absolutely, you have to ask people their opinions, ask them where the hurdles are in their lives, ask them what frustrates them. And then you've got to have a good deal of creativity in how you think about solving them. So if physicians get the right tools, adoption will follow. I think absolutely the same thing is true of consumers. It's one of my frustration points is that for most consumers, uh, not only those who have access to uh, you know, a portal, for example, from their, their provider, it's just a list of things. It's not necessarily something that really helps them understand how to make a different choice in the moment about what they have for dinner or whether they go out on a walk versus it's kind of like how often you go out to look at last year's tax returns versus how often you interact with your bank online. And in both of those situations, it's the issue of what's immediate and helps me live my life better today. And I think that's true of physicians. It's true of nurses. It's true of the staff inside of health systems. And honestly, it's true for consumers, too. I guess at the end of the day, we're all consumers in one way or another. <laughs> yeah, good point. Right. So, Just so, like different roles. <laughs> exactly. One of the things that I saw you commenting on and contributing to was this idea of 
losing the waiting room, that the waiting room in and of itself is an indication of provider centricity. Yes, um, I had a great opportunity several years ago to interview Dr. David Feinberg, who at the time was the head of UCLA Medicine and is now at Geisinger Health as the CEO. And he had done a marvelous job of kind of turning UCLA on its head to move from an organization where I believe something like only a third of their patients would recommend them to friends and family to uh, one that had those recommendations up in the 90s. And that was one of the things that he talked about was how they were even taking the idea of valet parking and using when somebody showed up at valet parking and got the sticker in their car that that was used to alert the clinic they were going to, that they, it would be about six minutes before they showed up so that they could have doctors waiting for the patients rather than patients waiting for the doctors. Uh, and if you look at a number of the Flip the Clinic initiatives, that's one of the things that they've been focused on. How can we design clinics and health systems so that it isn't about the convenience of the doctor with patients waiting out there for him or her? It's about convenience for patients. And, you know, think about simple things like a text message ahead of time to say, your doctor's running 15 minutes late. Wouldn't that help you in timing your visit? Or when you're going to the pharmacy, giving you a buzzer so that, like they do in restaurants, so you can go off and do other shopping and know when your prescription's actually ready. It's simple adaptations of capabilities that we're seeing all over the place in other contexts that will make healthcare systems work better, both for those inside and those coming to them. It reminds me of, there's an article that Michael Porter uh, wrote in yes. the Harvard Business Review, I, it was actually probably a couple of years ago now, talking about integrated care teams, i.e., and the example that he used is diabetes care, that currently you've got the endocrinologist in one building and the podiatrist in another <laughs> building, and then they have to go someplace else to see the eye doctor. Whereas if you know that diabetes obviously contributes to a very high-risk condition, and that there's all this comorbidity with caring for diabetes. Why don't you put everybody in the same building so that a patient can come in and all the providers that that patient needs in order to care for their very complicated and, and high-risk condition, they can handle and with a team that's actually talking together as opposed to... Uh. <laughs> Absolutely. And proximity means so much more, even with the technology that we have. I have a story in participatory healthcare. It's making me think of it about a young woman who broke her femur and had this long rehab cycle. And she told of going to see her doctor on crutches showing up and them saying, you know, we don't have your x-rays yet from x-ray. Can you go down and get them? And having to schlep through the whole length and breadth of the hospital on her crutches with not all of it as handicapped accessible as you would think to get her own x-rays inside the same system to bring them back for her care great example of, okay, are we really thinking this through about how this works for patients? Um, and I would extend that metaphor to uh, thinking about how 
we can get communities engaged in this and engaged in thinking about convenience as well. Whether that's thinking better about transportation to and from the hospital, i.e. Uber for healthcare, or how we coordinate and collaborate between uh, physicians, physical therapists, home health workers, etc., so that everybody has the same uh, set of data and is collaborating in a more comprehensive way to help people uh, get and stay healthy. Where can people learn more about participatory medicine and the things that you're working on, Jan? From a standpoint of the things I'm specifically working on, you can go to my website, janoldenberg.com, or follow me on Twitter at janoldenberg. But also, there are a lot of places that are doing this kind of work. And I think in particular, they're not as focused on digital, but the Plain Tree Institute and the Barrel Institute are doing some great work around um, what it really means to have a more collaborative and patient-centered healthcare system. But also, it's one of those things that if you are interested in participatory medicine, the Society for Participatory Medicine is a good place to start. They're patient advocates and advocates for, they include a lot of physicians and healthcare workers. So they're advocates for bringing all of this together. And there's a lot of action right now out there in the community that it's easy to follow and watch. And I think together we're going to be able to do this transformation of the health system that will benefit all of us. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Again, my great pleasure, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.